We've already prayed this, but it doesn't hurt again. Let me pray quickly for the reading. Father, we do pray that you would bless the reading of your word and the preaching of it this morning. Sow it deeply. Open our ears, our minds, and our hearts. In Christ's name, amen. Matthew chapter 22, verses 23 through 33. This is the holy, inerrant word of God. The same day, Sadducees came to him who say that there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses said, if a man dies having no children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers among us. The first married and died, and having no offspring, left his wife to his brother. So to the second and third, down to the seventh. After them all, the woman died. And the resurrection, therefore, of the seven whose wife will she be? For they all had her. But Jesus answered them, You are wrong, because you know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was said to you by God? I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. And when the crowd heard it, they were astonished at his teaching. Though the grass withers and the flower fades, the word of God is forever. Thanks be to God. Amen. Do you believe in resurrection life? Do you believe in resurrection life? The Sadducees in this passage, they didn't. I think, my guess would be, if we grabbed the average person on the street today outside of URC, we went down to downtown East Lansing and said, do you believe that there will be a resurrection? My guess is that most would say no, they don't believe that there would be a resurrection, though I do think most that we grab would say that they believe that there is an afterlife. They just believe it's some kind of disembodied state that we enter into. Now, it fascinates me to think about why is it that so many people in our society would believe that there is some sort of afterlife. Surely, part of it is there is fear of death and wondering what happens, and so there's some comfort to the heart to think that there is something that comes after death and it's going to be better. No doubt it comforts to think, ah, people that I loved and that I've lost, they're somewhere better. I think, though, probably a lot of it, or at least in part, it is because there's the remnants that we know that what you and I are experiencing in the present is not all that there is. There's some remnant of understanding of that, though, suppressed by everybody. The life that you and I have here on earth is not all that there is. And Jesus is going to get at that here in our text. 
Jesus, though, is having quite the day. It is the same day, we're told by Matthew here, the same day as the event that happened right before our text this morning. You may remember about a month ago we looked at this. The Pharisees had come to Jesus, and they came to Jesus with a question. And it was a question not because they wanted knowledge. It was a question because they wanted to trap him and see him defeated in public. And so they asked him this question about giving taxes to Caesar. And you will remember that Jesus gave a brilliant answer. Well, you have the same exact day after the Pharisees have come to entrap Jesus. Now you have the Sadducees come to entrap Jesus with a question as well. And their question is about the resurrection. They are also not looking for knowledge, but simply to entrap What is interesting is that the Pharisees and the Sadducees were natural enemies of one another. They didn't agree on much at all. The Pharisees, it is maybe easy to remember that they were the conservative religious people of the day. They were legalists. Everything was about the law of Moses. And they believed that by obeying the law of Moses that somehow it would usher back in God's good blessing to the nation of Israel and would usher in possibly even the Messiah coming into the world. And so the Pharisees were very much about the law and wanted people to obey the law. And so you can remember Pharisees believed this or about the law because they're fair, you see, has often been said, though they were quite unfair, you see, because they had an unhealthy view of the law. The Sadducees were not the religious conservatives of the day. They were the kind of social conservatives of the day. They were the ruling class of the Jews. They were allies of Rome. And they were skeptics about almost all of the Old Testament and what the Old Testament taught. Because they believed that this life was all that there is. That there was nothing beyond. You'll remember in Acts 23... When Paul is before the Sanhedrin, which is filled with Pharisees and Sadducees in that setting, that he is brought up on these charges and he will recognize that there are Pharisees and Sadducees in the midst. And so he will cause them to go into a great fight of disagreement. He will say, I am a Pharisee. I am a son of a Pharisee. And I am on trial this day because I have hope in the resurrection. And immediately the Sadducees explode and the Pharisees come to the defense of hope in the resurrection. And Luke tells us there in Acts, he says this, The Sadducees say there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. The Sadducees believe the resurrection was nonsense. They believe life after death was nonsense, and so... We remember them because they were sad, you see. No belief of anything beyond. Two different groups, very much opposed to one another. And yet they're united in their disdain and their hatred for Jesus. And so the Pharisees come with their question to entrap. It doesn't work. So now the Sadducees are going to come with their question to entrap. They come to Jesus with this question... And they do so for two reasons. It is is that proverbial, we're going to hit two birds with one stone. We're going to trap Jesus with this question of the resurrection. And it's going to make him look foolish. And it's going to make belief in the resurrection look foolish. 
And so, they paint a fanciful scenario. I think it's a made-up story. I don't think it's a true story. The Sadducees letting their imaginations run wild and they say, look, there is a man that marries a woman and he doesn't bear a child to this woman. And so his brother takes him as a wife. They are quoting from Deuteronomy 25.5, the Levitical law. And the Levitical law said that if a Levite was married to a woman and didn't bear her a son, then his brother was to take this woman and bear a son. But it is something that predates even the Mosaic law. And we see it there in Genesis chapter 38. We will see where there is a brother that takes his the wife of his brother who has just died to help provide a child was the reason. And so it seems that what Moses does is he codifies what was a cultural practice. And it was a cultural practice that becomes then part of the law of God so that a line of the Jewish people would not somehow disappear. That every family would stay intact. And so the Sadducees come with this question. They take this law to the absurd. They propose that there was a man that is married to a woman, and before he has a child with this woman, he dies. And so his brother then takes the obligation upon himself, and he marries this woman. But then that brother dies before they bury a child. So the third brother comes, and he marries this woman, and he dies before they bury a child. And so it all goes down the line. Every brother of seven brothers has this woman as his wife, and none bear her a child. And then she dies. And so all of those seven brothers have preceded her to heaven. And now she goes to heaven. And here's the question. Whose husband or whose wife will she be when she gets to heaven? Because she's had all of them. She's had seven husbands. The story's absurd. What makes it even more absurd is that they assume the resurrected life will be identical to life here. And then that absurdity gets taken to the highest possible level when you realize that the Sadducees themselves don't believe in the resurrection. They just want to make Jesus look foolish, make the resurrection look foolish, but Jesus is not tripped up. He tells them, you are wrong. And then he gives them two reasons for them being wrong there in the text. He says this, because you know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God. You know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God. And it seems quite possible that we could boil every sin of mankind down to these two errors. This ignorance right here. Ignorance of the Scriptures and ignorance of God. Ignorance of the Scriptures and ignorance of God. Now, if you told the Pharisees or the Sadducees you were ignorant of the Scriptures, they would have laughed. Because all of them had knowledge of the Scriptures. The Pharisees were renowned for having entire segments of the Old Testament Scriptures memorized. Some of the Pharisees, many of them having the entire Old Testament memorized. They knew the Scriptures. But they knew, but they didn't know. 
They didn't understand. Jesus says they're ignorant. There are many who possess a knowledge of the Scriptures, but they lack understanding of the Scriptures. You see the great examples in the Scriptures. Demons, when they see Jesus, they will call out. They will say, He is the Son of the Most High God. They know the prophecies. They know what they see. They know the Scriptures. They will quote from the Scriptures. And yet they know and they don't know. Satan, when Jesus is taken out into the wilderness by the Spirit of God, Satan will go out there to Him, and in those temptations He will quote Scripture after Scripture in tempting Jesus. And how does Jesus respond? He responds by quoting Scripture back to Satan and showing that though He can quote Scripture, He doesn't actually know Scripture. He doesn't understand it. I want you to notice how Jesus responds in this account to the Sadducees. He gives a doctrinal lesson. He says, For in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. Jesus is taking the teaching of the entire Scriptures and He is providing a summation of this particular subject, the resurrection, as He brings all the Scriptures to bear on this subject. It's not enough to be able to quote Bible verses. One must understand how the teaching in the entire book fits together, and they don't know, and so they don't know the Scriptures. Some of the most dangerous religious people are what I would call biblicists. I know the Bible. They can quote all kinds of Bible verses. I love that about people. Oh, memorize the Bible. Memorize verses. Be able to quote. It will inform your prayer life. It will inform your walk. To inform your conversations. But there are those that can quote Bible verse after Bible verse. They believe that in and of themselves and in isolation from all others, they can interpret what the Scriptures mean. But taking some Bible verse out of context that fits our preconceived opinions about a subject is not understanding the Scriptures. Every heretic quotes the Bible. Remember when I was in college, I had only been a Christian for a year and a half. And I think I was the second. We decided to start this in the Christian ministry I was a part of, the Christian fellowship. And we decided on Friday evenings that every other Friday evening we would have one of us preach a sermon. And we would all gather together. 120, 150 college students and one of us would preach a sermon. I've been a Christian for a year and a half. I've grown as a preacher. My grandma pulled out that tape the other day. It was a two-hour-long sermon, so you can be thankful. Uh, Don't preach like that anymore. I've been a Christian for a year and a half. And what was on my heart was what I had been wrestling with. One of the great early struggles of my Christian life was forgiving others. And in particular, it was how, how to forgive my earthly father who had divorced my mom when, he was, when I was two years old and left me without a dad and all the ramifications that came from that. And then to forgive my stepfather who did horrible things in our home and 
all the ramifications that came from that. And I remember I was wrestling with the Matthew 6 passage. I wanted to preach what Jesus said there in Matthew 6 about if you do not forgive others, your Father in heaven will not forgive you. And I went to a mentor pastor and I went with this passage and I told them, this is this passage I'm struggling with and I want to preach this so that other people understand the importance of forgiveness. Help me, what does this mean? And he, his heart was in the right place. It was right in many ways and wrong in many ways. But he said to me, he said, Jason, he said, you have the Bible and the Holy Spirit. Go figure it out. I've been a Christian for a year and a half. I was going to teach 120 to 150 college students from the Bible. I didn't know the scope of the Scriptures. I don't know how to bring on Matthew 6, Psalm 53, and Psalm 133, and the end of the Gospels when Jesus is walking with Peter on the beach and walking him through the act of forgiving him. I, I didn't know how to bring the doctrine of forgiveness to bear. I knew a verse. I didn't know the whole counsel of God. He did. And He should have given me input. One must understand what the whole counsel of God, the entire Bible, teaches on a subject. Doctrine is good. Systematic theology is needed. This is one of the things I love about our church. We are not simply a Bible church. We are that. God forbid we're never not that. But we're not simply that. We're also a confessional church. We hold to a confession. Now the confession is only as good as it articulates what the Scriptures teach, so we always need to be willing to amend our confessions. We always need to be willing to doubt what our confessions say because we stand upon the Word of God. And so where those confessions are wrong, we have to be willing to change them. But we're confessional. Confession accurately conveys, we believe, what the Bible teaches on a particular subject. And this has many implications for us as a church. One of you just asked me just this past week, what does it actually mean that we're a confessional church, that the leadership of our church holds to confession? And I said, well, one thing that it means is that this church isn't the Wild West. Everything is not up for grabs based upon an individual or a group's interpretation. Theological anarchy doesn't reign here. We have a thorough confession that provides a foundation and it provides also boundaries for what we will teach and what we will preach and what we will see pervade in the midst of our congregation. We want to know what the Scriptures teach. We want to know the whole Scriptures. Being doctrinal people, confessional church, stops the leadership, stops preachers, stops members from upsetting the balance theologically. There are things our church will not and it cannot change due to our vows as a confessional church. 
That means that personalities, that means that agendas and new thoughts will not, and they cannot determine the future of our church, whether stemming from a pastor, an elder, or a congregant. Not if we hold true to our confession. This is a side point, but I believe that being confessional and being a confessional church is one of the primary ways that we'll endure as a church as we see more and more of the onslaught of the culture around us because it commits us to the teaching of the entire Scriptures. It doesn't allow us to to neglect things we don't like. But to say, no, if we're going to stand upon the Word, we have to stand upon all of the Word. You see, the Sadducees, they find the resurrection to be inconvenient for their social standing. Such a belief, believing in the resurrection, it could upset their world. So they have a text that creates an absurd application that will allow them to undo this teaching in the eyes of the people. They have a text. You see, it's, it's incredibly threatening to think that there could be a resurrection. Uh, belief in a resurrection is revolutionary. If you believe that there is no resurrection, if you believe that there is no afterlife, then you can teach, as the Sadducees did, that you know what, all that they have accrued, all that they are enjoying, is a gift from God because they have merited it. It is His blessing upon them. All the blessings and condemnations come in this life. But if you believe there's a life to come, then it can upset the balance in the present. All of a sudden, you have to question, do things actually need to change? Doctrine matters. They have a text, but Jesus has the entire Scriptures. Being a Biblicist without grounding in doctrine or systematic theology is dangerous. Read theology. Ah, I want you above all to be Bible people. Know your Bibles. You have that good books on the side that you're reading doctrine. I always read above your pay grade. Read some book all the time. I try and make this a practice in my life. All the time, reading some book that, you know what, I understand about a third, maybe a fifth of what he or she's saying. So I want to grow. Notice here the second part, though. Being a theologian without grounding in the Scripture is equally dangerous. Jesus doesn't simply give them a theology lesson here. He doesn't bring the arguments simply to bear that, look, you were created by an eternal God, and it was sin that causes death, and so your God won't lose you to death. He has to resurrect the body because it makes logical sense. He's the creator. He's eternal. He doesn't go down that road. That's not what he does. What does he do? He takes them to the text. He asks... Have you not read what was said to you by God? Well, of course they've read this. This is the great refrain throughout the Scriptures that speaks of who God is. 
God says it over and over about Himself. I am the God of Abraham, and I am the God of Isaac, and I am the God of Jacob. They knew this. It is God articulating to His people that He's a covenant-keeping God. It's the very heart of the Jewish faith. Jesus then says, He's not the God of the dead, but of the living. Their lack of belief in the resurrection is heresy. It's heresy. And how does Jesus argue that? Well, from the text of Scripture. I want you to see especially how He does this from the text of Scripture. He does so from the grammar of Scripture. From the grammar of Scripture. I've uh, lived long enough now as a Christian that I have... There is always, there are, there are always different controversies happening in our Christian world. Uh, in the evangelical world, and the Reformed world, and confessional world. I mean, there are always controversies. Remember when uh, I first entered seminary in the 90s, uh, it was just coming to a close, but it was right after the great inerrancy debates. Is the Word of God inerrant? That is, is it without error? And the Chicago Statement on Biblical Inerrancy had just been signed by a bunch of great evangelical theologians, I think in 1989, somewhere around there. And so by the, the late 90s, it was pretty much a dead issue within the evangelical church. The evangelical church had come down on the right side of the issue. The scriptures are inerrant, they're without error. It's interesting, been around long enough now, that some of these things begin to make a return. And it's happening. I find as a pastor, I've had more conversations in the last three years with young people in our area that are doubting inerrancy than I did in the first 15 years of pastoring. Do you have to believe in inerrancy? You have to believe that the Scriptures are without error. You do if you want to believe as Jesus believed. Jesus makes His argument here based upon the verb tense. The verb tense. He says, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. That is what God said, I am. If there's no resurrection, then that wouldn't be the verb tense. If there is no resurrection, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob have died. God would say, I was the God of Abraham. I was the God of Isaac. I was the God of Jacob. You got a Bible verse? Great, Sadducees. Let me bring a Bible verse to bear. One that is over and over and over throughout the Scriptures. And let's look at the grammar. I am. He's the God of the living, not the God of the dead. The grammar of the text matters. 
We're not simply doctrinalists who make logical sense of things. We dive into the text and analyze the very words and the grammar and the syntax and the structure. Why? Because it is God breathed even down to the very verb tense. Jesus will say that there is not a jot or a tittle that will disappear. Those are the very smallest strokes in the Hebrew language. All inerrant. Try to press this home to you. We try and press this home to you over and over on Sunday mornings. That it is this that you need. It's this. Because it's this that is alone without error. It is this that alone is God-breathed. It's this that alone that brings life where there is death. Wholeness where there is fallenness. We structure our entire services this way. We read the Word and we preach the Word and we sing the Word and we pray the Word and we confess the Word and we see the Word and the sacraments. Every time before I preach, I say the same thing to you. This is the holy, inerrant Word of God. I'm not just making noise. It's because I want you to believe that deep down in your soul, that what you are about ready to hear read is without error. And every time after I read the Scriptures, I quote from Isaiah, not for flourish. I'm not a flourishy kind of guy. It's to press home to you that everything else disappears. It all fades. This alone is everlasting. This alone is the truthiest truth you can find. You build your life upon this. You listen to this. You believe this. No matter how loud the voice is there, you believe this. Know the Scriptures. His second critique of them is that they don't know the power of God. They're not only ignorant of the Scriptures, they are ignorant of God. Any teaching that inhibits the power of God is rotten at its core. Rotten at its core. You can't corral the power of God. They show that they don't know Him because they doubt His power. There is so much folly that is due to a lack of knowing who God is, what He has done, what He is doing, what He shall do by His power. It appears that these Sadducees think, you know what? Someone dies, they go into the grave, they're... They turn into dust. That dust is scattered. It's beyond the ability to be raised. God doesn't have power to do such a thing. People will ask, how can you believe in the resurrection? My question is, how can you not when you believe this is who God is? If He can make all things out of nothing, then He can make some things out of 
everything. Know the scriptures. Know God. Jesus gives them a bonus. He's going to show them how ignorant they are about the scriptures and about God and frankly about heaven by giving them a better picture of what the resurrection looks like. He says we will be like angels. We'll be like angels. You're not going to be angels. He says you'll be like angels. Does Jesus mean that we will be like angels? Oh, surely it means that we will be holy. Surely it means that we will be personal beings. Surely it means that we will be in the presence of God. But that's not the driving force of what Jesus is inferring here. Jesus is referring to the lack of sexual activity that angels enjoy. The Sadducees have offered this ridiculous story as if heaven was a sexual world. He says, resurrected people neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. There's the correspondence. No sex in heaven. No giving yourself to another in heaven like that. The angels don't do it. You're not doing it. Some say, well, that doesn't sound like heaven to me. Well, let's work this out. I think there's great help in this text for ways that we're being led astray right now by sin and by our culture. I want to convince you of two things this morning in this regard. I want you to see two things here. First, if what Jesus says is true here, which it is, yours and my identity is not sexual. Our identity is not sexual. It's not a small thing that our society is trying to convince you and I that our sexuality is the unchangeable sum of our person. As if what I am sexually is actually who I really am. That's the true me. That's the inner core of me. That can't be the case. That's not who you are. If that was true, then you cease to exist in glory as a person because Jesus says there is no marriage between people in heaven. And if that's not true in heaven, it's surely not true in hell either. Our sexual identity is not who we are because we aren't marked by it for all of eternity. I want to be clear. Sex is a good thing. Marriage is a good thing. Sexual union between a husband and a wife is a good thing. But it's not the ultimate good thing. And we know that because as one theologian said, it has no part to play in the ultimate fulfillment of human nature in God's eternal kingdom. Our fulfillment as humans is found there. And you're not having sex there. Your ultimate fulfillment is there. So what it means that you are who you are 
can't be bound up with sex. In heaven there will be no marriage. Except for one. The marriage of the church to its bridegroom, Christ. And that leads to the second implication I want you to understand from this. It's our union with God in Christ that is to be our greatest joy and delight here and will be for all of eternity there. It's not our union with a fellow person. Our greatest joy is not derived from the sexual realm, but with God that is wrapped up Eternal joy and happiness and satisfaction in himself. The Sadducees question, it's so silly. It's just silly. It's silly because they don't understand the theology or doctrine of the Scriptures. It's not just that they have a poor view eschatologically, that is of the end time. That's really not the core issue here. That, that isn't the main doctrinal issue they have. The main doctrinal issue they have is that they have a poor anthropology. A doctrine of man. They don't understand what people were created for. And where they find their ultimate fulfillment. It's in God, with God. That's their doctrinal error. Human marriage ceases in heaven. Why? Because we'll no longer recognize each other? We'll no longer know each other or be intimate with one another? No. We'll recognize people in heaven. When Moses and Elijah are on the Mount of Transfiguration with Jesus, Peter and John and James know who they are, there's recognition. When Jesus walks around in his resurrected body, when he desires people to know who he is, they recognize who he is. There's recognition. There will be recognition of people in our resurrected bodies. It's a glorious truth that we will be reunited in glory with our loved ones who have died in Christ. And those relationships will not be less than they were here. We will not enjoy them less than we did here on earth. They will be even more intimate. I can say that categorically. They will be more intimate. What I enjoy with my wife now, it will be more intimate there. How can I say that? Because there will be no barriers. There will be no sin. None. But those relationships, as good as they are, as much as we may look forward to them, are but shadows. Shadows of the relationship we will enjoy. What makes heaven truly glorious is God. God. Our experience and enjoyment of God. Part of the theology that, that Jesus is pressing home upon these Sadducees that they don't seem to understand is that God 
is a covenant-keeping God. And they would have played lip service to it. They would have said, yes, we know he's a covenant-keeping God. He's the God that made a promise to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob and to David. And, and we know that he keeps his covenant promise. What Jesus is pressing home is that you have to understand the full scope that he's a covenant-keeping God. He's made promises to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob that they are his people and he will bless them. For him to continue to bless them and continue to be their God, they have to actually continue to exist. They have to still be. Abraham still is. Isaac still is. Jacob still is. Howard still is. Betsy still is. Richard still is. Because he is a covenant-keeping God who made promises to his people to forever bless them. So he will. So they forever are. This is the bond that is never broken. You enjoy union Everlasting union if you are in Christ with the God of the universe. And if you know Him, then that thought, thought that I will enjoy everlasting union with the God of heaven and earth, my maker, my sustainer, my redeemer, that I will enjoy him in intimate union for all of eternity, that thought should just tickle your soul with delight. Ah, it should put a smile on our faces more than anything else. Because it's the greatest delight you can have. And if you don't know him, it should make you long to know him. The most enjoyable, deepest, fulfilling union that you and I can experience is that which we experience with our God in Christ. That is humanity and glory. Paul says it wonderfully in 1 Corinthians 2. No eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined. Not even a single human heart has imagined what God has prepared for those who love Him. If you know the Scriptures, if you know God, and you know this to be true. Let's pray. Our Father, I give you praise that you are a covenant-keeping God. You are a God who makes promises and fulfills them. I'm thankful that you are the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And that you are our God. And that you are the God of every Christian that has preceded us into glory. All those saints gathered before your throne now. Ah.
And we rejoice in this knowledge that is revealed to us in the scriptures and rejoice in you, our God. And come to know and delight in you and your holy word more and more as a people. In Christ's name, amen.